Take your Bibles if you have not done so yet and open them to Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. We call it Colossians. And we will continue to make our way through it. Today we get to tackle five verses, what we did last week, so making a little more progress. I trust, I pray that the slow progress is not a deterrent for you. Um, I, I love the ability to slow down and take it a little chunk at a time. Next week we're going to do just a couple of verses. And, and, um, but today I want to focus on the first five of chapter two. And the reality this morning as we prepare to dive in to chapter two requires us to, to look back at where we were last week in finishing chapter one. And the entire goal of Paul's ministry is to proclaim the hope of Christ. The mystery of the gospel, that is, Christ's living within those who trust in him until the day when they see him face to face. The song we just sang has quickly became one of my absolute favorites. Um, and, and, you know, as you think about just the words of that song as you work through it, you know, and that progression and, and everything that we sing about there and being brought back to God in Christ points ahead to the day when we see him face to face, right? And our lips shall repeat, yet not I, but Christ in me. We're there because of Christ in us. And this was the reality of this is the whole goal of, of, Paul's, gospel, or of Paul's ministry work is to proclaim the gospel. But we said last week that whether it's Paul, whether it's us, whether it was the people in Colossae, fo- following God is tough. And walking with Jesus is going to be difficult. It's not always going to be an easy thing. It's not always a hard thing. The Christian life very much ebbs and flows. There's going to be seasons where it seems things are a plenty, and there's going to be seasons where it seems it's a drought. And those are the seasons when it isn't always the easiest to follow Christ. Everything in this world is pushing back on your desire to follow Jesus if that's your desire. If you want to follow Jesus, everything in the world that we live in is trying to to hinder your ability to do that. It's trying to hinder your desire to do that. It's it's pushing back on everything of those who try to follow Jesus. And because that's true, what that often means is that for the follower of Jesus, it is absolutely necessary for us to commit to, number one, knowing and understanding, but then, number two, to actually toiling and striving in the Christian life. I don't know if you guys know this or not, and I'm, you know I'm not a doom and gloom kind of guy. I'm not standing up here waving a white flag saying, woe is the church. We live in a world that hates us. Those are realities, but we're not defeated by that reality. At least we ought not be, right? And, and so it's not desired to be a doom and gloom, but I personally believe, and I did share this last week, that I think one of the greatest hindrances to people trying to follow Jesus is that when they came to Jesus, nobody told them it was going to be hard. And I hear this gospel, I hear this good Jesus who was God in the flesh, and he came to, to save me from my sin and to, to put me into this right relationship with God, and, and, and he did all of these things. And then we start trying to follow Jesus, and it's tough. And we're trying to make sense of why is something that is supposed to be so good and is so good, why is things so difficult? Well, because that's what Jesus said. 
That's how Jesus said it would be. He said, in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus said, all, who you, all you who labor and are weary, heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. That doesn't always look like we want it to look or how we think it would look, but it is a promise of Christ nonetheless. And so we have to understand. I want you to know this morning, you might be sitting here thinking about this whole reality of the, of the Christian life and the gospel. You might be thinking about some of these things and you might be trying to reconcile the goodness of God with the difficulty of your current circumstances. And that's not wrong to try to do, to try to reconcile those things. But I want you to understand something. Just because our circumstances are difficult or different than what we would want them to be, does, that does in no way indict the goodness of God. And so we have to, going in to follow Jesus, it's going to be tough. There's going to be times when it's tough, but we must be prepared. The good news is that we can be prepared. God's word tells us that everything that we need for life and godliness has been, has been um, uh, us, provided for us. And I'm going to be honest with you, if I could just level with you guys again for just a second. I think sometimes... It's never easy to navigate difficulty, okay? I don't want to sugarcoat that. But sometimes I think uh, difficulties can be exasperated because we don't know God's word. We, don't, we can't put the difficulties into the perspective that his word provides for us, and that makes it that much more difficult to navigate and to toil well and to struggle well. And so we have to know that we're going to have to toil and struggle. We have to know that in, in, in the Christian life, we do strive through difficulty and we do strive through suffering. And I want to share one thing real quick, jumping back to last week, a comment that I made, because I want to clarify. I had made a comment last week, and it wasn't a wrong comment, but I want to clarify it. I made the comment last week that it is your responsibility to mature, not mine. And that's a true statement. But I want to make sure that people didn't leave, and if you did, I apologize and hear what I'm saying now, because I have a responsibility to try to communicate clearly, and oftentimes as I reflect, I find myself wondering if what I intended was what came out. Please know that was not me saying that I am not a part of the toil and the struggle with you in your maturing, okay? That was not me saying, you better figure it out. That wasn't me saying, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but we have to know that each and every one of us have an individual responsibility in Christ to, him, to pursue him and mature in him. Nobody can do that for you, right? And so I just wanted to clarify that real quick because I don't want people to think that, you know, that was really the whole point that Paul was making last week is his, he's toiling and he's struggling with the Colossians. And we'll see this morning with others as well. And so I don't want anybody leaving thinking, I don't care about you guys, and that you need to figure it out. And maybe you didn't leave that thinking that. I hope not. But if you did, I trust that my clarifying words clarified it and that you um, will give me some grace. But this morning, we're going to continue this conversation about toiling and struggling. Is your guys' screen blinking on and off? I say the one in the back is I can tell Aaron's working on it, but I didn't know of what yours, what your guys' look like. So just try to ignore that as he, he sorts through figuring some of that out. I didn't know if you guys are way better than me because I was trying to look at people and see if they were looking at the screens, but I couldn't really tell me. I'm like, that one's flashing. So uh, sorry, but we'll continue the conversation this morning. 
uh, in this portion, a lot of people actually would submit that this is an unfortunate place for a chapter break right here at the beginning of chapter 2, because it seems that Paul is actually continuing the thought that he began in verse 24 of chapter 1 that we looked at last week, and he carried it out through chapter 5. And so a lot of what Paul touched on last week, he's reinforcing this week. And so interesting, I even told Aaron throughout the course of this week, it presented an interesting task for me, because it's not that often that I'll prepare to preach and look at it and say, well, how do I say something different than what I said last week and the exact same thing that he said last week? And as they poured over it and as you look at it and as you read different stuff and you meditate on God's word, uh, I'm thankful this morning that, that he you know, gave us some direction and, and uh, we get to really zero in on an aspect of Paul's toiling and struggling as well as the believers. And so, you know, as we consider this continued conversation of toiling and struggling, Paul adds an emphasis upon something this morning that lends itself to what could make things more difficult, but also the importance of our maturity in being able to toil and struggle well and identify some of these things. And so I want to read our text together. First, we'll start with that Colossians 2. I'm going to begin in verse 1, and I'm going to read the first five verses. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Father, as we look into your word this morning, we pray that you would give us understanding, and we pray that you would give us eyes to see it, and we pray most importantly, God, that as we interact with your word, that our hearts would be soft and that they would be open to the truth that it is. And uh, Father, as we consider the words of Paul this morning, continuing his conversation here at the church uh, in Colossae, we pray that you would just impress upon our hearts the importance, the significance of growing in Christian maturity. And God, there's a reality that if there's an importance of, of growing in Christian maturity, then that means that there is a danger of not growing. Father, help us to see that as well today. May you stir our hearts, and God, may you grow us, not just for the sake of growing us. God, may you grow us so that we would know you more deeply, God, that we would love you more deeply, and that we would uh, strive faithfully to make you known among the nations. And so, God, we pray that you would be at work in us and through us today for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so what I want to do is, it's may, it may not matter. I had what, you know, typically we'll have some points. And I've got three things this morning that they're really not points as much as we're just going to kind of walk through these five verses. It may not matter what's up on the screen at all because I'm guessing your guys' is off now too. So um, we're going to go back to the Stone Age this morning and not use any kind of technology. No, it's not that far back. But um, So just kind of to trek with me here and uh, we'll make some observations and then we want to make some application. But just starting out here, looking at this, we got to understand that Paul is, is reinforcing, he is reminding these, these believers at Colossae of his continued toil for them. So if you're taking notes, that's what we see here in these first two verses. Paul continues to toil for the believers. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And then he includes others outside of the church there in Colossae. 
right? And so he continues here what he begins in chapter 1, the acknowledgement of his toil and struggle. Why? For the gospel and for the saints that have, have, have identified with and belong to this gospel. And one of the things that we didn't unpack last week, but is very much at players Paul's talking about, is this idea of, of struggling. It's a physical exertion. And it's in the context or the sense of an athletic event or some kind of physical training. And so if we look back to chapter nine, or chap, if we look back to verse 29 of chapter one, sorry, Paul's usage of struggling, it's spiritual by nature. But it speaks to this same reality of physical training. It's interesting as as you think about this continued uh, toiling and struggling of Paul in a a spiritual sense. He's using a physical example for a spiritual toiling and struggling. And as I was thinking about this this week, I want to share you guys something with you guys that I, I think maybe will resonate with us. I hope that it does. The idea here of continuing to toil and struggle, physical exertion to keep moving is a lot like going to the gym physically. You go to the gym and and you work out and, and you continue to work out and you continue to exert energy and over a period of time, what do you get? Stronger. Okay, you, you develop greater endurance. Now, when I talk about this and I talk about the continued toiling and struggling of the believer, I want to now take that example and and make an illustration of it. And the illustration is this. For far too many people in the church, and you guys know when I say in the church, I'm not limiting that to us, but we always have to be willing to consider whether or not that does include us. Far too many people in the church have a spiritual exertion like I do physical. I get real excited about going to the gym, and I go two or three times, and then I quit going. There's a whole host of reasons why, okay? Far too many folks in the church, this is the reality of their spiritual life. Man, they heard a sermon that they were convicted by, or they interacted with somebody, they had a conversation, maybe they trusted Christ initially, and so they got this passion, and they got this zeal, and they're super excited, and they want to learn this, and they want to know this, and they want to grow in this, and for whatever reason, over time, that desire wanes. And, you know, we're, going, we're getting ready to go on vacation in April, and I said something about, I got to get to the gym, I'm just going to tell you all right now, April's going to come and go, (laughs) and not much is going to have changed. You know, at some point, you just own it, I guess. But it doesn't have to be that way spiritually. And what God's Word is calling us to here this morning as we consider the example of Paul is that there is a great danger for our spiritual lives being this way. And we could make the argument there's a great danger for our physical lives being that way as well. But Paul's not talking about a physical struggle here. He's using a a picture of a physical struggle to elaborate on a spiritual reality. If there's a goal for the believer, they must know that goal and they must work to achieve that goal. That goal is spiritual maturation. Becoming more like Jesus. It will never happen by accident. You will never become more like Jesus if you do not willingly toil and struggle and strive to be more like Jesus. 
And so Paul is talking about this goal, this reality of Christian maturation. Paul has a concern for them because there's those outside of the church in Colossae who are pushing in on the believers, who are challenging what they think about Jesus, who are are challenging the things that they should be doing or the things that they should not be doing, seeking to undermine the gospel and the, the pressure is being pushed in. And Paul says, you've got to grow in Christ. Because if you're not growing in Christ and if you're not growing in the gospel, I'm going to tell you something. The pressure will become too much. It will become too much to bear. And so Paul, he continues to elaborate on this concern. And now he's included a a greater sphere of concern. Because remember, he's never been to the church at Colossae. He's actually writing to a church he's never been to. And then he, he fleshes that out. He talks about the church at Laodicea. And then in chapter 4 of this letter, we see that he includes the church at Hierapolis. There's three churches here that Paul has never been to, and yet he has great concern for them. Laodicea was about 10 miles from Colossae. And Hierapolis was about 15 miles from Colossae. So there's this little network of churches here that exist. And Paul is toiled and struggled for them continuously and exhorted them to do the same. What Paul desires ultimately is he toils and he strives and maturity takes place is for the believers there to be encouraged, to be built up, and for their hearts to be knit together in love. And Paul says in verse 2 that he desires that the letter that they're reading from his hand would be just as significant and impactful for those churches as if Paul was there himself. Even those I have not seen face to face. I pray that this letter will serve as an encouragement to them. That it would knit their hearts together in love. It's interesting because the first portion of this conversation, going back to last week in chapter 1, there was a very heavy emphasis on the individuality of the believer. The individual responsibility. And Paul is shifting a little bit here from the individual responsibility of of the believer to the, the ramifications of that and the whole. See, the church can't be knit together in love if she's not maturing. Right, And so Paul is speaking to this larger context, the body as a whole, and speaking to the importance or the need of being knit together, being built up as a whole and being built up in love. But it's not just information. And I know I've said this over and over and over, even just since we've been in Colossians. As Paul is writing here, he's not... Just saying, hey, I want you to know some things and I want you to feel good about the things that you know. And I want you guys to have a commonality because you know some of the same things that will allow you to be knit together in love. No, actually, as Paul is talking about this reality of their hearts being encouraged, he's talking about literally who they are being transformed by the gospel. May you as individuals be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ in order that the body as a whole would be transformed. He says he wants their hearts to be encouraged. The heart, biblically, it's the very center of who you are. It's how you think. It's what you do. When the Bible talks about the heart, 
it's not talking about the organ that beats in the middle of your chest. And Paul's desire is that the hearts of God's people would be encouraged and knit together that would form then a formidable foe that the enemy could not oppose. Because Paul's getting ready to start getting into the reality that there is an enemy seeking to oppose the church at Colossae. And here's a very simple, practical application. If the hearts of the people in Colossae are not being built up, if they are not being encouraged, if who they are, what they do, how they think is not being transformed by the gospel day after day after day, then they are going to be more susceptible to falling victim to that which is pushing in on them from the outside. And fractures take place relationships get broken. And this is why Paul says, no, no, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be built up. And then I want you to be knit together because individually you will be overcome. Your toiling and your struggling is so much worse when you do it alone. I got a call. I got a text yesterday afternoon. A man here from the church, um, was, had been having some stomach pain, and he went to the hospital yesterday morning, early in the morning, and we were in Evansville for basketball, and so in between games, I went to the hospital, and I was just there for probably 10 minutes. I prayed with him, and then I went back to the basketball game, but I want you to understand something, and this is not about me. I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal. I just want you to understand the point that I was making about toiling and struggling alone is so much worse. The very countenance of the people, the husband and wife, when I got there, changed when I walked in the room. Being able just to sit with them for a minute and pray with them made a big difference. Now, here's the thing you got to understand too. It's not because it was me, right? It's not up to me to be the sole one who helps those struggle and uh, toil and strive, not in isolation. That's what Paul literally says here. It's a group project. And the goal is not that I work real hard so you can get an A. The goal is we all work real hard so we can all get an A. And that A, just in case you're wondering, is well done, good and faithful servant. Right? And so Paul, he's, he's desiring that they would be maturing and that they would be growing. Because they have a very real enemy. And you don't want to toil and struggle and strive alone and in isolation. It's not how it's designed to be done. And so the second thing I want you to see in verse 3 is the reality that believers must continue to pursue knowledge and understanding. You must continue the pursuit. Continuing to grow should be the goal for all believers. But believers who are growing, as we've said, they're not just increasing their wisdom and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in you, right? The gospel, we talked about this. And so this is a very similar language to what we saw back in verse 9 of chapter 1. And I, and I don't want to just re-preach the same thing and, well, we're talking about knowledge and we're talking about understanding. But I do want us to notice how it is that Paul regards the wisdom and knowledge. He says they're found in where? In the treasures that is Christ. Wisdom and knowledge from God are a treasure. I don't know if you know that this morning. Maybe you've never heard that. But to, but to know God and to be in line with God is a treasure. To know more of who God is and to know more of what God's desires are is a treasure. It's interesting. 
when we think of knowing Christ as an issue of what we treasure, right? Okay. It's further interesting is Paul talks about the treasure right after he talks about their hearts being encouraged. I don't know about you, perhaps it has already, but my mind goes directly to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus speaking in what we commonly refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, there is clearly a distinction between what God regards as treasure, what believers regard as treasure, and what those outside of Christ regard as treasure. For God, the treasure is the knowledge of his will in Christ. What a treasure to behold. The knowledge of the will of God in Christ. All of the treasures of God are wrapped up in Jesus. I don't know if you know that or not. But I want you to know that. This is why we talk about, look, if all you get is Jesus, is that enough for you? If it's not, you're going to be disappointed. Because everything that God has to offer, really, we, in our Romans 11, our call to worship, Paul says in Colossians, for all things by him, in him, through him, is Christ. Everything is for and about him. And in the Christian life, The treasures of God and everything that he offers are wrapped up in Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that has to be enough. That has to be enough. Because God's not giving you anything else. He doesn't need to give us anything else. It has to be enough. For those outside of the faith, the treasure is what the world has to offer. Get more. Get what you want. Feel good. Do it how you want to do it. We would summarize this as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. These are the tactics of Satan to uh, seduce Eve in the garden. They were the same tactics that Satan used to attempt to seduce Christ in the wilderness, only he failed. But this is what the world has to offer. But for the follower of Christ, the treasure must look more like the treasure of God than the treasure of the world. Because as we've said, Christ is the treasure. Everything that God offers is wrapped up in him, his life, his death, his promises, and our eternities. But I'm going to be honest with you for just a second. The dilemma this morning is that far too many professing believers do not treasure Christ. They don't treasure him. He is not their treasure. He is not what they desire. They do not desire the things of him. They do not desire the fellowship of the, the, the body of Christ. The sad reality is our churches are full of people who do not value the treasure that God treasures. That's a dilemma. And this is absolutely at odds with what even Christ himself had to say. You see, it's clear that all people are pursuing some kind of treasure. Jesus didn't say in Matthew 6, well, if you decide you're going to pursue some treasure, don't pursue this, but pursue this. No, Jesus said, don't pursue this. 
You know what the, you know what the point Jesus is making is? Naturally, you pursue this. Naturally, you pursue the things that the world has to offer. Naturally, you pursue the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, look, all of that stuff, rust destroys, the moths eat, thieves break in and steal. So don't chase that treasure. Understand that there has to be a cognitive change, much like in salvation. There has to be a a cognitive understanding that I was not pursuing God, and in Christ I'm pursuing God, right? I've been saved by faith from my sin. This heart transplant, this changing of our minds, we call it repentance. And and, And God, Jesus says, you must stop pursuing the things of the world. Instead, pursue the things of God. And Jesus says something very telling. Relationship between our treasure and our hearts. We will treasure and ultimately pursue the things that have our hearts. So you sit here this morning and you wonder, does God have my heart? Do I pursue the things of God? What do you pursue? What's valuable? What do you treasure? Because Jesus said, where your heart is, or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And reminder, the heart is not the organ in the center of your chest. Instead, it's the focal point or the center point of everything that there is about you. Who you are, what you think, how you do. When the world has your heart, you will treasure the things of this world. And perhaps this morning, you might need to ask yourself, why do I treasure the things of the world? Why are they so appealing to me? Why do I long for them so much? Because they have your heart. And if they have your heart, Christ does not. And it can't be both. It can only be one or the other. So when you allow your heart to be possessed by the world, you treasure the things of the world. Money, stuff, sports, academics, accolades, etc. But when Christ has your heart, you'll treasure the things of God like wisdom and the knowledge of his will in Christ. We are all pursuing something. Something captivates every one of our hearts. Something drives everything about who we are in this life. We're all pursuing something. We're pursuing the treasure that our heart views as most valuable. And what we're pursuing matters because those who claim to treasure Christ will receive opposition. We've talked about this over the last couple weeks. 
And here Paul gives some specific insight into one of the ways that those outside the church will oppose believers who are desiring to mature in Christ. And so the relationship here, I want to make this for you, is this. If you treasure the things of the world, you will buckle under the pressure of the world when it comes to Christ. Because when you treasure the things of the world, I don't have to tell you guys this morning that the allure of the world is strong. I don't have to tell you this morning that every time you turn around in the grocery store, there is an opportunity to be sucked into a thought process or a conversation that is not healthy for the believer. I don't have to tell you this morning that every time you get on the internet, you are one click away from spiraling out of control. That's the world that the church is existing in. And if the treasure of your heart is the things of the world, you're looking in the grocery store. You're clicking on the internet. And then, I'm just going to level with you. And then for the professing believer, you know what oftentimes happens? We create chaos in our lives and then we blame God for it. We say, well, if God is good... Why is this happening? Why is my family struggling? Why do I have this and why do I have that? See, the question is not if God is good. The question is what is the treasure of your heart? I don't have to tell you the world is seeking in every opportunity in every way possible to keep you from maturing in Christ. So you must toil and strive. You must have a heart that treasures the right things. Because the opposition is real. And Paul makes it very clear this morning. People trying to follow Jesus will be presented with opportunities to lose focus. There will be those who have a goal. The whole goal is to delude the thinking of the believers. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The idea of deluding here is cleverly deceiving. Cleverly deceiving. I love that rendering way more than I do delude because I think it's more clear. It's not as deluding. (laughs) See what I did there? But you can delude water and it not be noticeable. And that's the point. Paul is saying that there are those who are going to craft clever arguments that are going to look enough like good stuff that you're going to want to pursue them. And if you're not growing and increasing in the knowledge and the will of God and understanding, then you will fall for the plausible arguments. You will be deceived by the clever schemes. And the idea here is so important. Because so often the believer is deceived and they don't even know it. Because the deluded plausible argument was a good one it looks good sounds good it must be good it's masked to look like something different than what it actually is how do we combat falling victim we must have a growing knowledge and understanding of god and his will otherwise we cannot identify clever deceptions Now, I'm going to give you an example 
And I'm going to tell you before I give you this example, hear what I say and do not hear what I do not say. Okay? I cannot stress that enough. I don't need anybody leaving this morning saying, oh, Pastor Justin's a hater and he's critical and all these other things. I am critical. I am a skeptic by nature, and I do want to allow time to bear itself out before I make a sweeping or casting judgment. Now, I'm just going to throw something out. Like I said, hear me before you, you know, either, yeah, or throw me out. Anybody been following what's going on in Wilmore, Kentucky? Over at Asbury College? Now. This is where I need you to hear what I'm saying and not hear what I do not say. I am not saying that it is a work of the devil whereby people are being deceived. I am also not saying that I know for a fact or believe wholeheartedly that it is a work of God where hearts and lives are really being transformed by the power of the gospel. Do you know why I'm not saying either one of those things? Because I don't know. I'm not there. Now I want you to understand something. Even the church, we talked a little bit about this this morning. The church has fallen victim to thinking a lot like the world. The situation with Asbury comes up, and immediately people at this end of the spectrum are like, oh, this person was there, oh, this didn't get said, so there's no way it's of God. And then at this end of the spectrum, this person says, oh my gosh, it's the greatest thing I've ever seen. And so we've got these two polarized opinions competing, just yelling back and forth in one another, and I just want you to know, I use this illustration of here and here, right here is where I want to be. I want to be somewhere in the middle. I want to step back and I want to look at what's transpiring and I want to, number one, I want to pray that it's genuine. I pray that revival sweeps this nation. Why would I not want that? Why would I not pray for that? Of course, I would love to to see that. And I pray that what has transpired at Asbury College is genuine revival. But here's the deal. Number one, we don't know. At no point ever in church history have we looked at an event while it was happening and called it a revival. Never. What we've done with Asbury is is, is we've created something that it may be or it may not be. And that's why it's so polarizing. Five, ten, two years from now, we might look back and say, look what God has done that started at Asbury. But I want you to understand something. It's just as plausible that two, five, ten years from now, we'll look back and say, yeah, nothing really happened at Asbury. Now, again, don't get up out of your pew this morning and be saying, oh, Pastor Justin, he hates Asbury. Nope, that's not what I'm saying at all. But I want you to understand something. If you don't think that the devil would use a quote-unquote revival to deceive people, you are deceived. He will use anything he can. He will use whatever he can. Now again, I did not just tell you that that's what's happening at Asbury. I just want to draw your attention to that it could be. We simply don't know at this stage of the game. I could get on the internet right now and find a thousand people who say it's absolutely a farce. And then I could do one Google search and find a thousand who say the exact opposite. Why do I got to cast judgment? 
Why can't I just pray that people's hearts and lives are being changed by the power of the gospel and step back and maybe one day be able to rejoice in what began? I had somebody say to me, we were talking, they said, you know, I thought about trying to go over there, but it just didn't really work out. You know what I told them? I said, if the revival at Asbury is real, you don't have to go there because it's coming here. If the revival at Asbury is real, brothers and sisters, buckle up. You don't have to go search it out. The, the, a movement of the Holy Spirit of God is just that, of God. You read the book of Acts and they wanted to, and they had all these people, Peter's preaching and they're beating Peter and John in the street and the council's confirmed. And what did Gamaliel, the guy who you know, taught Paul, what did he say to the council? He said, I say you warn them and let them go. Here's why. Because if they're not of God, they'll fizzle out in the go away just like everybody else who came before them. And then you know what Gamaliel said? Oh man, he was wise. He said, but if it is of God, you can't stop it anymore. I just want us to to reckon this morning with the reality of God's word. I pray that what's happening at Asbury is genuine. And I pray that you do too. But I have no, no problem and there is no shame in my game for identifying myself as cautiously optimistic. Cautiously optimistic. Only the fruit of the events over the course of time will tell us the truth. And furthermore, John tells, uh, John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We have to be careful and, and strive and toil to be sure that we're not deceived. And sometimes that means don't rush to judgment. Sometimes that means saying less and listening more. Social media, you've heard me say this before, is absolutely destroying the world we live in. Absolutely destroying the world that we live in. But brothers and sisters, we have a responsibility to know the truth and to be able to spot a false prophet. Can you? Somebody comes along preaching a good message, you know, like Satan did. Can you spot it? Do you know when it's a phony? The only way you're going to be able to spot a phony is if you are growing in Christian maturity. If you are growing in your knowledge of God's word, the more you grow, the more you can spot a phony. But if you're an infant spiritually, you're more likely to be deceived. And, I mean, I think this makes sense. That's a picture we can understand, right? Uh, If you've raised kids, they're five, six years old, and you, you go down to the park, let me, I'll use my childhood as an example. We lived around a corner from a park. You know, and 30 years ago at 10, you could go to the park three blocks away and you didn't have to worry about nothing. And we would go to the park and play, me and my siblings. And my mom or dad, what would they always tell us before we left to go to the park? Don't talk to strangers. Why? Because when I'm eight years old, I don't have the faculties to discern the motives of strangers. I'm easily deceived. I like puppies. And he said he's got one. I like candy. And he said he's got some. But when you get a little bit older and you get a little bit wiser, you better understand why your parents said, don't talk to strangers in the park. You see what's going on in the world that we live in. You see the evil and the corruption and the wickedness in the hearts of men. It's the same way spiritually. 
When you're a spiritual infant, you, you, you can't discern motives, and you can't, and even as you're growing spiritually and maturing, sometimes it's not that easy to discern motives and, and know what people are thinking and why they're trying to do the things that they're doing, but it does become easier. But Paul makes it clear that it's not always going to be easy, and those who are trying to trip us up and deceive us, they're going to be clever about it. They're going to be really good at what they do. So Paul, verse 5, finishing, he says, I will be with you, maybe not physically, but I will toil and struggle with you and for you so that you would mature and not fall, uh, uh, not fall victim to the damages or to the pitfalls of not maturing. Guys, there's something at stake here. There is something at stake in your Christian maturity. You have an enemy. If you are in Christ, you claim to be in Christ, you have an enemy who desires to deceive you, to trip you up, to cause you to stumble, and eventually say, nah, I'm not sure about this Jesus thing, I'm out. And if you're not privy to what he's doing, you're going to fall victim. You're going to fall victim. And so Paul says, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going I'm to minister to you as I can, and I'm going to pray for you faithfully, and I want to see you mature so that you can avoid the dangers of not maturing. And so we have a responsibility to seek God for growth, to rely upon him for growth. And so I want to finish with a few questions. What are the things that truly have your heart? Those things, they are your treasures. And those are the things that will be most important to you. And you can claim to be a believer and not give a hoot about Jesus. I just want to be honest this morning. And I think that's a reality for a lot of people in the church today. If the things of God are not what have our hearts, if the things of God are not what has your heart, what keeps that from happening today? What keeps that from changing? What treasure have you accepted instead of the treasure that is Christ? What substitute are you seeking and pursuing and taking instead of Jesus? Are you striving and toiling to grow spiritually? Are you physically exerting, was the picture Paul used, that you might grow to be more like Jesus? Or is your spiritual life like my physical life? Were you excited once and now it's not that big of a deal? Were you excited once, but to get in shape physically, I got to get in the car and drive to the Y in Ferdinand, so I'm like, nah, I'll pass on that. Man, I got to get up 10 minutes earlier to read my Bible today. Now nah, I'll pass on that. I'm going to be honest with you, I think that's a reality for a lot of us. I don't have 10 minutes to read my Bible. I don't have 10 minutes to pray. But yet I expect the fullness of God to be within me and to pour out of my life. Those two things cannot exist together. So are you striving, toiling? I always say I'm going to get in shape, but I never do. Is that your Christian life? Are you on guard spiritually? As you grow and as you mature, are you aware that people desire to deceive you and trip you up? 
And, and again, by the way, nobody has ever been deceived by a slogan that says, this is deception and it's going to ruin your life, so let's do it. No, deception usually looks like, this is going to feel really good. This is going to really change your life. This is really going to give you all of the things that you've wanted your whole life. See, they sound good, right? Can you spot a phony? Can you spot a fake? Only you know the answer to these questions. And I want to encourage you today to be honest about the answers to these questions. To be maturing in Christ. And there is a great danger if we are not. Paul fought for the Colossians to help them grow. And by way of God's word, Paul has fought to help you and I grow. Are you growing? Or are you in danger of being swept up in the clever schemes of the devil?